Okay, this morning we are going to uh, be in Arthur W. Pink's book, The Attributes of God, once again, um, beginning with chapter 8 on the holiness of God. And then we will see if we get to chapter 11 on the goodness of God. I have a sneaking suspicion that God's holiness will consume our time much as it consumes all of eternity. So, um, as we begin, uh, I want to read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Uh, The great vision Isaiah had of the throne of God. And of the seraphim worshiping. Okay, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we read your word. We read in the scriptures descriptions of your throne, which we know can only capture a glimpse of. And even the glimpse that is captured is conveyed to us in part. And even that part is too glorious for us. For we, like Isaiah, are people of unclean lips. From people of unclean lips. And Father, we, we see your holiness in your word. We ask, Lord, that as we discuss together your holiness and your goodness that you might, by your spirit, help us to, uh, to have a greater glimpse of you and help our response to be proper, as Isaiah's was, was uh, recognizing and confessing of our sin and worshiping you from the heart. Be with us now as we discuss. Uh, help us to be faithful to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. The holiness of God, Um, when we discuss or use the word holy to describe something, often, especially when we're talking about things, created things, we're often describing uh, its state as being set apart, uh, as being set apart uh, for God or by God. Um, So when scripture describes something as holy, it's most often describing the relationship in which that thing stands to God, who is the source and pattern of all true holiness. Thank you. 
Now I'm going to kind of uh, pull from a few different um, sources or, or authors to describe holiness, um, including Pink, but others as well. Um, and then we'll kind of go through what Pink focuses on. Um, mostly in this chapter and in this chapter on the goodness of God, Pink is focused on how God's attributes are displayed. Um, but I want to begin a, a little bit talking about what the holiness of God is um, to the extent that we can. Pink describes, um, well, I think just as, as an introduction to what holiness is, it's closely related to God's goodness, um, his perfection, and his beauty. All those things are kind of wrapped up together. Uh, sometimes holiness is described as God's moral perfection or his purity. It, it, it conveys that idea of, of uh, morally he is perfect, without flaw, without blemish. He's completely pure. Nothing in him is profane or in any way less than perfect or perfectly good and righteous. Pink describes the holiness of God as the very antithesis of all moral blemish or defilement. And he says that scripture calls God by the name, the Holy One, because it is the sum or because the sum of all moral excellency is found in him. Thomas Watson describes, uh, says that God's holiness consists in his perfect love of righteousness and abhorrence of evil. So not only is he perfect, but he loves what is perfect and good and he abhors or hates what is evil. So there is this absolute perfection in himself that is absolute, but also in his affections, in his heart. Everything about him, his thoughts, his, his uh, affections, his works are all perfect and morally excellent, good. Uh, Herman Bovink says that the biblical term holiness expresses the relation in which God stands to the world. So it is an absolute thing, but it, uh, for our purposes, it, it is best understood as expressing the relationship in which he stands to the world. He's, uh, Bavink says that God is called holy in a comprehensive sense, in connection with every relation that impresses humans with his deity. In other words, in everything by which God reveals himself, whether his name, his attributes, his word, his works, he is declared to be holy in all of those things. It runs through all of it. Now, uh, Petrus van Maastricht describes holiness as God's moral excellence through which first God is separated from whatever is common and profane. And that's a total separation. There's no association. There's no countenancing of what is profane or common. Cannot be in his presence. Uh, he is also devoted to himself. If he is perfectly good, perfectly righteous, he should be devoted to himself. And he is. So he does all things on account of himself and for his own glory and good pleasure. That is a part of God's holiness or moral excellence. If something is morally excellent, uh, it is uh, to be valued, to be desired. And so that applies to God as well. Because he is morally excellent, God desires himself.
through God's moral excellence as well uh, in all of his thoughts, words, and deeds. He is exactly in conformity to the holiness which, is he, which he has expressed in his own law. So everything about himself, his, his law, his commandments, his requirements, as he sets those forth and reveals them to us, they are a reflection of his own character. He is in perfect conformity at all times with the holiness that he requires or commands. Also, Van Maastricht says that God's moral excellence, uh, in, through God's moral excellence, he is pure and most absolutely contrary to everything evil, iniquitous, and base that he forbids in his own law. So again, it's that affection and, and abhorrence. He, he is perfectly in conformity with all that agrees with him or that conforms to his, his law. And he is completely and, and absolutely contrary to anything opposed to his law, opposed to what he forbids. We can think of that in uh, how Romans, in, in Romans, Paul describes the enmity uh, that the unrighteous find themselves toward God. That's because they are unholy. They are uh, not in conformity to his law. And so God is opposed to them. It's not only a negative absent, uh, absence of his presence from them, he is actively opposing them. And that's because of his holiness. And I think especially in light of that, God's opposition, active opposition to all which opposes him, even the sin within creatures, even the sin within us, though he, we are no longer at enmity with him, he is opposed to our sin and commands us to, to wage war against it, against our flesh. But in light of that, I think it's especially relevant what Pink says. He says, it is this supremely, his holiness, that is, supremely, which renders him lovely to those who are delivered from sin's dominion. If we creatures are under the uh, dominion of sin and cannot save ourselves, can do nothing in ourselves to please a perfectly holy God, it is his holiness in which we delight. If we have been rescued from that and now can behold with the eyes of faith, what is the antithesis of what we were? We were wicked. We were in iniquity. And now we are allowed to behold and enter the presence of the perfectly holy one. That is a beautiful thing. And, and it is that uh, that is lovely to us. Okay, I want to read. This is a, a paragraph from Pink. describing or talking about God's holiness. He says, This perfection, as none other, is solemnly celebrated before the throne of heaven. The seraphim crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's Isaiah 6, 3 that we just read. God himself singles out this perfection. In Psalm 89, 35, he says, Once I have sworn by my holiness. God swears by his holiness because that is a fuller expression of himself than anything else. In other words, when he's swearing by his holiness, he swears by himself. Uh, so he is, is um, verifying his own truth. He is verifying his own, um, his own word, stamping it and sealing it 
with his own approval. Therefore, are we exhorted? This is pink again. Therefore, we are, exo- are we exhorted? Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Psalm 34. He quotes John Howe, who says, This may be said to be a transcendental attribute that, as it were, runs through the rest and casts luster upon them. It is an attribute of attributes. I love that as well. We, we've, we've discussed a lot and, and talked about how all of God's attributes describe all the other attributes. Uh, and this one, particularly so. All of his attributes are holy. They are pure. They are morally excellent. There is nothing higher uh, than all of them. There is no, no shadow in any of them. And again, back to pink. Thus we read of the beauty of of the Lord, Psalm 27, 4, which is none other than the beauty of holiness. So again, this is, this is an attribute in which God especially delights. He delights in his own holiness and he values it. He is jealous of it. And those who do not recognize it or glorify him because of it, he opposes and condemns. Okay, I want to spend a little bit of time reading some scriptures that address or describe the holiness of God. And again, I think uh, as we have previously, if if, uh, anyone would like to look some up for me. Um, First, Exodus 15, 11. Anyone want to look that up? I got it. Dan? Um, Habakkuk 1.13. Lindsay, thank you. And then 1 John 1.5. Ava, thank you. Let's see, Jeremiah 23. All right, 23.9 through 11. And then Numbers 14.8. David, thank you. Excellent. Okay. All right, Dan, you want to start with Exodus 15.11? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Who is like the Lord, glorious in his holiness. Again, it is a particular glory of the Lord in which he delights and in which his people delight. Exodus 15 is the song of Moses, that as they are delivered, um, the song of praise that Moses uh, renders to God. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, chapter. That's the word I was looking for. Of scripture. Okay. Um, Lindsay, Habakkuk 1.13. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil, you can't look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Did I have that right? 
113. I might have had that wrong. I might have cited that wrong. I'm not sure, but I wrote it down. Forgive me. The verse, I, <laughs> the verse I was looking for, it says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look at wickedness. That may have been... One, one, I think it's a translational... Oh, is it? Okay. Got it. There you go. That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Quite all right. Um, but the, the, the message there is the same. The Lord is pure. He cannot behold evil or look at wickedness. Now, we know he sees all things, so it's not that he turns a blind eye. But we're talking about the countenance of the Lord looking upon uh, with any kind of, of uh, favor. Uh, he cannot countenance. I think that's a good way uh, to put it. He cannot countenance evil. And it, where it exists, it is exposed, it is held accountable, and will be punished. Okay, 1 John 1, 5. Ava? This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Again, that's light, not, not like the sun or like an electric light. We're talking about the light of God's... Um, well, God's moral perfections, his, the light of his holiness, of all of his attributes, are good and perfect. Uh, there is no darkness at all. He is completely pure. Okay, Jeremiah 23, verses 9 through 11. Uh, concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome with wine, because of the Lord, and because his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers, uh, because of the curse the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their curse is evil, and their might is not right. Both prophet and priests are ungodly, even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. So that, that passage describes the distress at recognizing our sin when we hear God's holy words. Isaiah says, my heart within me is broken. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man and like a man who, whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. Uh, so like Isaiah, who was undone, said, woe is me. I'm an, uh, an uncle, a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. When we hear the words of God in, in, its, in all of its holiness, in all of his holiness, when we behold him, we truly recognize our own wickedness and we are undone. We are distressed. It reminds me of uh, the multiple times in the Old Testament that the words of the law have been discovered. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. All the times God's people returned to the law was a terrifying encounter. It was distressing. It was humbling. 
Okay, David, Numbers 14, 18. 18. I may have misspoke, sorry. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations. So the Lord is full of mercy, but he will by no means clear the guilty. His holiness must be satisfied. When there is something opposed to or transgressing his holiness, it must be satisfied. His justice requires punishment of sin, and his holiness requires a perfect cleansing of all sin's perfections. So it's not just the punishment, but it must be made holy. It's not just a negative taking away of sin. It is. It must be Uh, cleansed and made holy. Or excuse me, it's not just the punishment, but it requires cleansing and taking away of sin. I misspoke there. So when we read passages like that about God's justice, uh, we have to see in that God satisfying his holiness, in his holiness, requiring that all things be brought into conformity with himself. And even those things which are now, not in conformity, we know there's sin, even in our own flesh, in our own hearts, we find and discover sin. We are required and commanded to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Um, and we know that one day God will complete that work in all of his creation, bringing all things into subjection and conformity with him. And all that stands opposed to him, outside of him, will be punished for eternity. Not just for a little while, but for eternity to satisfy his eternal Holiness and his eternal justice. Okay, I want to um, go to uh, Exodus 28. Um, this is ver- verses 36 through 38. This is God commanding Moses regarding all the, the um, ceremonial elements, um, the instruments, and in particular here, the... Um, the clothing of Aaron, the high priest. Uh, Exodus 28, verses 36 through 38. Okay, so this is, um, this is the priestly, some of the priestly garments. Uh, this is describing the crown that Aaron should wear. It's, uh, and it says this. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So when Aaron enters the presence of the Lord in the most holy place, he wears an, uh, an inscription, holiness to the Lord, on, his, on the crown that he wears. All things that enter the, the presence of God must be holy, perfectly so. And we know from the book of Hebrews the limitations of uh, earthly priests. And we needed a perfect high priest. Uh, to do this, what all the things that Aaron wore, all the things that Aaron did, the whole priesthood throughout all the history of Old Testament, 
uh, Israel must be done perfectly and must be uh, uh, able to take away sin perfectly. We'll get to that a little bit later. And we know that that is fulfilled by Christ. But I want to read from Zechariah. I think this is just really stunning. And remember, it's holiness to the Lord that was inscribed on the crown of Aaron that had to enter into the throne. So this is Zechariah 14. Verses 20 and 21. This is talking about the day of the Lord. It's talking about the end. It's talking about the day of glory. It says, In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take, take them and cook in them. In that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. When God's presence fills the whole earth, all things will be holy. It's talking about the bells of horses, the, the, the very most profane things. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah, the most common and profane things that we can think of today, when God renews all things, when his presence fills the whole earth, holiness will apply and adhere to all of them. They will all be sanctified to the same extent that Aaron was required to sanctify the things that he brought into the holy place of God, the most, uh, the holy, the holy of holies in the temple, everything in the presence of God will be one day that holy. I think that's really stunning and amazing. That verse also at the very end is foreshadowing the end of Revelation where there's no longer an outer court where the Gentiles were segregated to. Yeah. And the reason there's no longer a Canaanite is they are all Israel. It is all Israel together with God in the Holy of Holies is what a really beautiful picture related to the holiness of God. Yeah, absolutely. Every Church. every wall of partition, every we know the the veil was torn that kept people out of the presence of God. Uh, the outer court will be all will be one. There will be no separation. All will be in Israel. Top to bottom. Top to bottom. Right. The veil was torn. Top to bottom. Okay, those I think are, are of course, just a sampling of of what Scripture has to say about the holiness of God. Um, And it's endless. Uh, His holiness is on display on every page of Scripture. Okay, Pink, uh, in his chapter, quotes a lot from Stephen Sharnock, which is awesome and great. So we're going to read a couple of those as we go. Uh, One of those quotes... He says this. This is Stephen Charnock. Excuse me. Breathing into the microphone. All right. Again, describing and discussing the holiness of God. As it seems to challenge an excellency above all his other perfections, so it is the glory of all the rest 
As it is the glory of the Godhead, so it is the glory of every perfection in the Godhead. As his power is the strength of them, so his holiness is the beauty of them. As all would be weak without almightiness to back them, so all would be uncomely without holiness to adorn them. So he's talking about the attributes of God. All of the attributes would be uncomely. They would not be beautiful without holiness to adorn them all. Should this be sullied, all the rest would lose their honor. As at the same instant the sun should lose its light, it would lose its heat, its strength, its generative and quickening virtue. As sincerity is the luster of every grace in a Christian, so is purity the splendor of every attribute in the Godhead. His justice is a holy justice, his wisdom a holy wisdom, his arm of power a holy arm. Psalm 98.1. His truth or promise, a holy promise. Psalm 105.42. His name, which signifies all his attributes in conjunction, is holy. Psalm 103.1. So again, drawing us back in our minds to the idea that God's holiness uh, applies to all of himself, all of his attributes. And it is the beauty of all of his attributes. And that's not just... Theologian saying so, God himself delights in his own holiness. Okay, so in what way, how does God manifest his holiness? And this is where Pink spends most of this chapter. We're for sure not going to get to the next chapter. Okay, so God manifests his holiness in all of his works. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. That's Psalm 145, 17. Nothing but that which is excellent can proceed from him. Holiness is the rule of all his actions. And we can think of uh, at creation... God declaring that all things were good. All things were made uh, free from any impurities. They were made uh, completely good originally. Because all of his works, uh, whether creation, providence, redemption, all of his works are holy and declare his holiness. God also reveals and uh, manifests his holiness in his law. And this is pink again. God's holiness is manifested in his law. That law forbids sin in all of its modifications. In its most refined as well as its grossest forms, the intent of the mind as well as the pollution of the body, the secret desire as well as the overt act. Therefore do we read the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Romans 7.12 This is why it was so... um, Tragic that Israel um, found sin only in their actions. They identified sin only in their conduct. Uh, they did not see that sin, uh, that God's law was, uh, was requiring that their hearts um, be in conformity to his law as well. All of our affections are to be holy, are to be righteous. Uh, and Israel was so intent on controlling their actions and often the actions of others. They did not see that it was their hearts that needed to be circumcised uh, more so than their bodies. 
Um, God delights in obedience of the heart. And that's what so often people look at the Sermon on the Mount and see just a, a great moral teaching, something that is an accessible Jesus, a Jesus that is describing a way of life that we can, that we can adapt to ours, that we can incorporate and add on to our lives and, and have some moral meaning or something. But really, at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was exposing the depth of the perfection of the law. He was saying, you have missed Moses said this, but I say this. He was drawing the law into their hearts, saying, you need the law written on your hearts more than on tablets of stone. He was, if anything, showing just how far we are from keeping his law, not making it easier. He was showing just how perfectly pure God's holiness is. And when we recognize that the righteousness and holiness of God is in his law and that that is perfectly summed up by Christ. He was telling us throughout his whole life, his whole ministry, maybe especially on the Sermon on the Mount, he was describing his own righteousness, the perfection of his own righteousness and holiness. He who was among them at that time in the flesh. Now, I think I do want to emphasize um, that it's important that God is not holy because he conforms to his law. It's the reverse. I want to make sure that we don't get the wrong impression. God is not holy because he obeys his own law. It's his law that's holy because it conforms to his nature. Uh, the law is, especially as we read it, it's a, a summation of the perfect moral law of God, which is contained in himself. He is perfectly holy and he gives to us a law that conforms to himself and by which he conforms us to himself. Uh, so he is not, you know, we need to not get it the other way around. That God keeps his law and therefore he is holy. No, he is holy and therefore his law is holy. And has the power by his grace to conform us to his nature. Isn't that also where we get it wrong with our own salvation? We often think that we're holy because we keep the law. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. We are not holy when we keep the law. When we are made holy, we can keep the law. <laughs> um, but again, even in this life, it's 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 the work of Christ, His perfect life that did satisfy the entire law. That is what is accredited to us. Um, that makes us holy. We, our works are accepted and our works are accepted only as they are found in Christ. Um, but yeah, Jonathan, that's a great point that we're not, we cannot be saved or sanctified by keeping the law. We are saved uh, and, and sanctified, made righteous, even while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And now those who are called and justified are now in a process of being sanctified. What is it to be sanctified? But to be made holy. And that's a process that will be completed on the last day of the resurrection in glorified bodies when we are freed from what Paul calls the body of death. Okay. Um, 
we also see the holiness of God manifested uh, at the cross and in God's perfect hatred for sin, which is fully on display at the cross. The, the atonement God required at the cross, even in the Old Testament, it's, it's um, demonstrated how violent and bloody and terrible that atonement is. It gives us a glimpse of just how much God hates sin. Uh, This is another quote from Stephen Charnock. Not all the vials of judgment that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, nor the irreversible sentence pronounced against the rebellious demons, nor the groans of the damned creatures give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his son. Never did divine holiness appear more beautiful and lovely than at the time our Savior's countenance was most marred in the midst of his dying groans. This he himself acknowledges in Psalm 22, when God had turned his smiling face from him and thrust his sharp knife into his heart, which was which forced out excuse me, which forced that terrible cry from him, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He adores this perfection. Thou art holy. So even in experiencing the wrath of God and the judgment of God upon sin, Christ glories in the holiness of God. And that wasn't even his own sin. His sin was accredited to him. It was our sin accredited to him. And he, he experienced the full measure of God's wrath. And even in that, gloried in the holiness of the Lord that was on display. I think that's amazing. Okay, I'm going to start wrapping this up. And I try to do so somewhat quickly. So how should we respond to the holiness of God? What, what do we do with this? <laughs> First, it ought to draw us, and and as Jonathan was even alluding to, it should draw us to a humble reliance upon his holiness alone. Pink says, acceptance with the most holy one on the grounds of creature doings is utterly impossible. A fallen creature could sooner create a world than produce that which would meet the approval of infinite purity. Jeremiah 13, uh, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. Now this is why the blood of bulls and goats was insufficient to cleanse us. I said we were going to come back to this. Uh, this, This is why the blood of another fallen creature cannot save us. It's why a priest who is himself cursed cannot make an effectual atonement before the throne of the Most High and the Most Holy God. And this is why only the fount and original source of holiness can make pure what has been defiled. And it's only by the Holy One of Israel taking to himself the likeness of sinful flesh, as Romans 8.3 says, in order to pour out his own perfect blood. Only then could full atonement be made for sinners. And it's only by his blood that we who were once far off from him because of our sin can be accepted and brought near. That's what we learned 
we know from Ephesians 2.13. So it's only in the holiness of the most holy one that our sin, our iniquity can be cleansed. And it is, it is foolishness, it is folly to make the mistake that Israel did in the Old Testament to believe that the blood of bulls and goats could do anything. And it was those who recognized that that God delighted in. Um, David, in many of his psalms, acknowledges that these things don't bring delight to God, the blood of creatures, but it is a, a humble and contrite heart, a heart that worships and obeys. That's what God delights in. We ought also to come before God as we now are able, amazingly. We ought to approach with reverent fear for His holiness. We could think of Aaron's sons who brought profane fire and were destroyed. So we must be covered by the blood of Christ, clothed by His righteousness, to enter His throne and to come before Him. And thanks be to God, we are. Not by any work of our own, and therefore not by a work that can be undone by us. Praise God for that. But we also ought to seek to be conformed to God. Many times in Scripture, God commands us to be holy. And He says in several places in Leviticus and then also in 1 Peter 1, Be holy, for I am holy. And knowing that the holiness of God is, is uh, His very nature, His being, His essence, when God commands holiness, He is requiring conformity to Himself. Not just conformity to His law, not just conformity of our, our bodies, our actions, but of our whole being, our hearts, our minds, our will. He is commanding conformity to himself. And by the Spirit's work of sanctification, he is bringing that about himself. Not only does he require it, but he produces it. He works that in us. Again, thanks be to God for that. What he commands, he supplies. Okay, we'll conclude here with a last quote from Stephen Sharnock. This is the prime way of honoring God. We do not so glorify God by elevated admirations or eloquent expressions or pompous services of Him as when we aspire to a conversing with Him with unstained spirits and live to Him and living like Him. So may that be our prayer that we might, in all of our conduct, do so with unstained spirits and that we might live to God by living like Him. Okay, let's end it there and pray before we go over to worship. Heavenly Father, thoughts and 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 conversation about your holiness could consume all of our days for we would never reach the end of it. We would never plumb its depths. But we thank you and praise you that we have been made holy. Though we cannot understand the depth and fullness of your holiness, we have been made holy. Now in part, but one day in full on the day of the resurrection. 
And praise be to your name. We will have eternity with you, beholding your holiness, praising you for it, joining with the seraphim and crying, holy, holy, holy. Lord, we ask that we might taste a measure of this even now, especially as we gather together as we are able to do and commanded to do in worship on your day, a day that you have set aside as holy. May we regard your day, the Lord's day, as holy and by it be made sanctified by your gifts, by your ordinances. Lord, we praise you and thank you and ask that your spirit would be poured out in a mighty way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.